Good morning. We are finishing our series on um, We Don't Talk About That. Today we're talking about the word lost. And I pray as we've talked about these different topics that you have been challenged to think about these terms or these concepts that churches don't talk about as much, uh, Christians don't talk about as much, because it can have a huge impact on your life and even a huge impact on where you spend eternity. And like so many of these words we've discussed, the word lost, I think, would be in that list. The word lost is one that we don't use as much. Some people find it offensive. In some ways, it's easier to just avoid that word or use another word. We think that maybe if we use the word lost, we're labeling people, maybe judging people, uh, kind of condemning them in a state because maybe we think we're special because we are found. And yet the Bible teaches openly, often, about those who are lost and those who are found. It's one of the most basic principles that's found in Scripture. I feel like we've seen in so many words in this series, it's very important for us to understand this concept rather than thinking about it as being uncomfortable. See, the problem with thinking it's uncomfortable is that Jesus evidently didn't think it was uncomfortable because he talked about lost and found all the time. It's like you read through the Gospels and, and you realize that's, that's who he was. That's why he came. In fact, I put this on the top of your outline in Luke 19, verse 10. Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. But he didn't just say those words. He, he lived those words. I was looking through the Gospels. That was his purpose for leaving heaven. That's why he came to earth. In Matthew chapter 10, we read Jesus sent his disciples out. And he used the word to go and find those who were lost. In Matthew chapter 15, he says he had come to find the lost sheep. And then in Matthew chapter 18, again, it's like chapter after chapter after chapter. Jesus there in Matthew chapter 18 talks about becoming like little children. And he mentions there, goes on to say he's not willing for any of these little ones to be lost. And so what you find when you read the words of Jesus, he uses the word lost. Openly, caringly, talking about those who need to be found. So over and over, Jesus challenged his followers then, and through inspiration, challenges us even today to realize the kingdom of God is not about self. It's about others. It's about realizing those who are lost. We have a humble spirit. We serve others. We share our faith, realizing the importance, realizing the gravity of all of this. Scripture has a lot to say about being lost. I've got three points I want to make. One truth is this. Being lost could be devastating. I hope we all know this. Being lost could be devastating. The word that we render in our Bibles as lost comes from a Greek word, and that Greek word actually has several meanings, and none of them are good. Oftentimes when that Greek word appears, it'll come across in our English language as lost, but sometimes it's translated as perishing or even destroyed. Satan is called a, a form of that word in the book of Revelation because that's why he came. He wants people to be lost. He wants people to be destroyed. But just like the word holy, we talked about this recently, used rather casually. We say the words like holy smokes or holy cow when there's nothing holy about either of those. We use the word lost kind of in daily conversation too. And it kind of takes the sting out of it a little bit. We think of maybe being lost as being um, confused 
Or, or maybe just a momentary lack of, of judgment, or, or, or maybe we just can't recall for the moment, or, or maybe being uninformed, sort of like being turned around when you step off of an elevator. Do I go left or right? Or when you come out of a department store and you feel a little bit of loss because, like, now, now where did I park? Uh, you, we've all had those moments where you think, wait a minute, I have to stop and kind of catch myself a little bit. We sometimes think of loss as being something that's harmless, that momentary lapse, that's quickly corrected. Yet when we read that word in Scripture, what it describes is people who are headed toward destruction, people who are perishing. Romans chapter 6, 23, the Apostle Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Doesn't sound harmless to me. In fact, it sounds very, very serious. This is not just a momentary confusion. I'm not sure where to go, left or right. This is desperate. This is serious. And some take offense to being called lost because they think it sounds rude or insensitive. That being lost is harsh or judgmental to, to think of people in that terms. But let's be real about this. Nobody likes to be called lost. In fact, you ever been driving a car and maybe you miss an exit or, or also you look up and all of a sudden you're not sure exactly where you are. It's a, a new town or maybe a long road trip and, and so you missed your exit and, and, and somebody says, hey, I think we're lost. And if you're the one driving, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to be, no, I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. We don't want to be called lost. We don't want to acknowledge that we're, I got this. Just missed my exit. I can figure this out. I'm not lost. Everybody else in the car is going, yes, you are. <laughs> Happens often. Pride is a dangerous thing. We don't want to be wrong. And even if we're, even if we're wrong, we don't want to be told we're wrong. And lost implies that you're wrong. You're on the wrong road. You need to be found. Please understand the word lost must be a term that we understand and use because the Bible teaches about how devastating it is. And if you die in that state, or if the Lord comes back, that word lost, again, it means perishing. It means destroyed. And I don't say that to be insensitive or offensive. I say that because I care. We need to use the word because we care. We need to care enough to do something, to sometimes even have some conversations Magician Pendulet is a rather crude entertainer. You may know of him and his partner. He's a devout atheist. He's the kind of guy, if you were talking with, you'd have so little in common with. But yet, he says some things, and I want you to see this homemade video he made. And he used the word proselytize. We don't use that word as much either. And that just means to get somebody to believe like you. And he has some strong words about those who claim to be Christians... Who won't talk about it? Who won't share that? Look, look at this clip. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? 
how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Here's an atheist asking, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe there's eternal life and they're not going there and you not say something about it? That's rather convicting. So which is worse, to speak the truth in love or, or say nothing at all to allow people to move in the direction of being separated from God for all eternity? Again, he talked about a, a car. Like if you're in a restaurant and, and you walk by the kitchen, it's on fire and it's spreading to the dining room. Do you just casually walk out and save yourself? Or do you tell everybody, hey, there's a fire. Everybody needs to leave the building. How much more important for us to share the message of Jesus? Well, there's some good news. Point number two, being lost can be devastating, but being lost doesn't have to be permanent. You don't have to stay that way. John 3.16, you know this verse well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I share that verse because of the word perish. It's the same word as lost. This time it's translated perish. Same root word. Jesus came to solve this potentially devastating problem for all of those who are doomed to hell. He came so they could be found. Yet talking about the lost may seem a little uncomfortable. Almost feels like in some people's minds, well, you're calling people's names or maybe pointing fingers. But here's an humble truth. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Can you say those words? Probably can. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And it's good for us to remember, I once was lost. To remember what was done for us. To remember the price that was paid to buy us back. To wash our sins away. I once was lost. But now I'm found. See, if we're pronouncing judgments on people. If we're in any way with our words coming across like we're pointing fingers at people. All that shares is that we have forgotten that I once was lost. Because if you remember that you were lost, you have empathy for those people who are also still lost. And you want them to be found. But if we have a condescending spirit pointing our fingers, maybe not literally, but with our attitudes, our demeanor, maybe our words, pronouncing judgments on them, then we've forgotten where we've come from. Some people are not aware of Jesus. Some people may not be convinced of the gospel. They may not understand the good news of Jesus. And now they are moving through their life, headed toward an eternity without Jesus. They are lost. And you and I can change that. You and I can make a difference. Maybe you've heard the story about the young family that was out shopping. Mom, dad, five-year-old son. They were looking at some clothes on a rack, started talking. They looked up, seemed to be just a second, and the little five-year-old boy, gone. So they immediately start looking for him. They can't find him. They divide up and start spreading out, thinking they can cover more area. They get the clerks involved. About 15 minutes pass. They can't find their little five-year-old boy. The mom's heart just sinks. She has this fear that no parent wants. Has he been abducted? About that time, 
There's an announcement over the loudspeaker. Would Mr. and Mrs. Johnson please report to the manager's office on the second floor? They run up the escalator, find the manager's office, open the door, and there's their five-year-old son sitting back in the manager's chair, sipping a Coke, feet propped up, just smiling so big, until he saw the frantic look on his mom and dad's faces, and then he burst into tears. Why? Because he did not know he was lost until he was found. That story, I think, illustrates, helps us to picture people don't know that they're lost. They're kicked back. Their, their feet are propped up. They're sipping a Coke. They're smiling. They're enjoying life. They don't realize that they're lost. You and I know. God knows they're lost. And we can do something about that. We can introduce them to Jesus. Roberta Kuhn wrote, Seize the Moment, Share the Message, wrote this. Let's give them what so few, few people will. Let's give them our time, our hearts, our listening ears. I have discovered that people will most often come to love us before they come to love our Savior. See, it's not pointing fingers at anybody. It's pointing a finger to Jesus. It's come follow me as I follow him. Let me tell you about the one who's made a difference in my life. Let me explain the good news of the gospel. This Jesus who can make a difference. And that brings us to the third truth. Being found gives us a mission. Being found gives us a mission. The Apostle Paul talks about the change that takes place in our lives when we move from being lost to being found. The conclusion of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says these words, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you ever think of yourself as an ambassador for Jesus? That's who you are. If you've been found, you are ambassador for Jesus. God is making his appeal through you. This is not plan B. This is his plan. This is how the news is going to get out. And if you've been found, you have a mission. Don't you just love to see the excitement of a new Christian? You know, they're so eager. It's almost like they can't contain themselves. They're so dedicated. They're, they're, the spirit in them is just so alive. And, and, and they're so excited and they cannot not talk about it. But something happens over time where it's almost as if the new wears off. The excitement fades. The enthusiasm goes away. And our boldness is tempered. And we become comfortable. Maybe you find yourself being comfortable, being found. And we forget the devastation that we were saved from. And that takes away a little bit of our sense of urgency. Our, our, our passion for those who are lost. To, to realize that we are on a mission. Worse than that, our attitudes can sometimes become selfward. It's all about me. It's all about what I like, all about making me comfortable. Our prayers are geared toward that. Our choices are geared toward that. Our lives are geared toward that. And we're not even thinking about this mission that we're all on. We're all missionaries. Sometimes we think it's just those who are in another country or those who are employed by the church. All of us, if you've been found, you are an ambassador. You have a mission Worse than that, our attitudes may become like the religious leaders in Jesus' day. 
They had a hard time accepting Jesus as the Messiah. And look how Jesus described the situation. Luke, Luke described it in the opening verses. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is such irony. To think about this, Jesus is attracting the very ones he came to save. And it's bothering the ones who call themselves religious leaders. They're grumbling about it. It didn't make sense to them because they felt truly spiritual. Like they were the chosen ones, that they were set apart. And the way they dressed, the way they gave, the way they prayed, the way they lived their life, the people that they didn't associate with at all. And now here's this Jesus who claims to be the Messiah associating with these people. You get the idea that they enjoyed this separation. Felt perhaps like they were superior to the tax collectors, the prostitutes. So Jesus hits them head on. They've missed it totally. And so Jesus tells three parables in rapid fire succession to drill home the point. You think you've got it, you've missed it. So he shares, and you know these stories in Luke chapter 15. They're very familiar with us. But he begins with the man with a hundred sheep. Note the wording, verse 4. What man of you? I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The NIV says, suppose one of you. So Jesus begins this story saying, think about you. Put yourself in the shoes. You're the one. You're the shepherd. Which man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And he goes on, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. We know this verse. We remember this verse. And what we love is that he left the ninety-nine and goes in search of the one. And when he finds it, he celebrates. Why? Because that which was lost is found. And he tells this to people who immediately get it. It's an agrarian culture. They're farmers. We'd say country people. They understood. He started talking about an illustration with sheep and shepherds. They got it. They understood exactly what he was talking about. Because they all know if a sheep is lost, it's like coming back. A lost sheep is a dead sheep. It's only a matter of time. He's either going to starve to death or it's going to be somebody else's dinner. So a lost sheep is a dead sheep. They got that. Story number two, verse eight. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So again, talking about shepherd. Now he's talking about a woman. What woman? Any woman. Common, understandable. If you lose something, you're going to go and find it. Stop the presses. Time stops. Sweep the house. And then when you do find it, that joy of celebrating party time, we understand all of that. And then story number three, the lost son. I want to make sure that we get this. Do you realize the impact or the value of each story increases? Now, I'm not saying that the the coin is worth more than the sheep. But notice the progression in all three stories. The first thing Jesus was concerned about, that that shepherd is one in a hundred. 
And then it was one in ten. And then it was one of two. And then it was family. It gets personal. It's at home. He goes straight to the heart. Look at verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. You've studied this before. You know, that's like saying to your father, I wish you were dead. No respect. No appreciation. Because if he's dead, he gets the money. He said, I can't wait for you to die. I want the money now. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey to a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And you can picture this. He's smelly, he's barefoot, he's starving, he's desperate. Verse 17 is the turning point. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But when he came to himself, the NIV renders that when he came to his senses. I like that wording because... You're out of your mind if you're separated from your father. But see, not everybody, you've heard this before, not everybody changes when they see the light. Sometimes they have to feel the heat. And that's what's illustrated in this story. This guy had nothing. Now he's hungry. He's separated from his family. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. He's lost. And some of you know very well that feeling because you've been there. It's not very fun. And the Bible says he didn't just keep thinking about the situation. He got up and did something about it. Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. See, a lot of people think about repenting. A lot of people will talk about being baptized. But they don't ever do anything about it. But this young man does. But remember, he has no idea how he is going to be received or if he will be received. Maybe the father will say... I don't know you. My son is dead. He died when he left here. Or maybe the father won't even greet him. Maybe the father will send a servant and say, you may return when you can repay all the money. Or did he imagine his father saying, ran out of money, huh? I wondered how long it would take before you came crawling back. All those thoughts had to be swimming In addition, like, hey, just come back and you can be a servant. No longer a son, but a servant. Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So we need to understand the father's thoughts are just the opposite of everything he's thinking. Because in this parable, we know this, this dad represents God the Father. And the father starts running toward him. And I hope you understand how significant that is. Not only was that not what a father did in that time and culture, but it pictures God as running. Only time in the whole Bible that God is pictured as running. Does that communicate to you how eager God is? You just turn around and he is there. That's how eager God is to save those who are lost. And the son humbly begins his speech. The son said to his father, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
And you know, the dad doesn't even hear it. Not a, not a word of the speech. He's too busy kissing him. Too busy embracing him. He doesn't want to let go. Verse 22, where the father said to his servants, but quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. An amazing moment. He didn't say, we're going to have a party tonight. They start celebrating right then. Music starts. I mean, he's looking to his son saying, quickly. Again, it's that, that eagerness. And he's saying, bring out the robe. Bring out the ring. Bring out the sandals. Bring out the soap. I mean, he had to be thinking that. He didn't say it. But he's kissing him, loving him. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. And here's the word, he was lost and is found. And yet he wasn't lost. He knew where he was. The son knew where he was the whole time. The son knew how to get home the whole time. He knew where to go. But he was away from his father who loved him. And when he came back, they began to celebrate. But we know that's not the end of the story. Now remember, he's telling this story to these religious leaders who don't understand how, why, if Jesus is the Messiah, how can he associate with these lowly sinners, these pitiful people, these outcasts, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the grumbling. So he continue, continues the story. And you can just sense this rebuke for them. Verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field. As he came and drew, drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. But you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this young son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For your older brother was dead and is alive. And here's that word again. He was lost and is found. Do you remember what it's like to be found? Do you remember that moment for you? When you realize what God saved you from? When you are aware of your sins, when you understood the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for you, that those nails that nailed him there, when he became sin, it was your sin. When you were convicted of the truth, that propels us on a mission. And we accept that role of being an ambassador that God is going to make his appeal through you. Man, woman, young, old, if you are following Jesus, that is your call. That is your commission. And it should propel us to do everything we can. Understand, Jesus didn't come to earth to perform miracles. 
Jesus didn't come to earth to serve the poor. Jesus didn't come to earth to preach some amazing, life-transforming lessons. Jesus came to save those who were lost. And when someone is lost, has been found, it's time for a celebration. I want to close with a challenge very quickly. Always, always think about those who are lost. I share that because sometimes I don't. And I'm assuming you're with me in that. Sometimes you don't. We don't think about it enough. Because I think if the lost are on our minds, number one, we're going to pray about them. By name. We have that list. I'm praying for these five people to be lost. It may not be through me, but somebody, some ambassador, God is going to work through them to bring them to Jesus. So pray for them. If the lost are on your mind, you're going to see them differently. You're going to treat them differently. Instead of a clerk, you see a soul. Instead of a co-worker, you see a person who is created in the image of God. Instead of an enemy, you see someone who Jesus died for. You're going to see them differently. And you're going to be praying for them. You're going to be thinking about that. You're going to be looking for an opportunity to say the right word. Maybe invite them to church. I put out on the front here, and there are also in the back some cards with times of services. that You can invite somebody to church. Take a pack. Take ten packs. Have them ready. Nothing else. Maybe just put it in your purse or your pocket to remind you to be thinking about those who are lost. But more than just invite them to church, invite them into your life. Look for, pray for an opportunity just to say what needs to be said. Because number three, if the lost are on your mind, it changes you. You're not just praying for them. You're not just seeing people differently that their souls If the lost are on your mind, it changes you. You get up every day and you realize that is your mission. That is your calling. You're living for the Lord. You realize you are saved. You're headed toward eternity with God. And when you realize that, you can't help but realize that there's others who are not. So invite them. Tell them about Jesus. Pray that somehow the lost will be found. Since Jesus came to seek those who were lost, shouldn't we as his followers do the same? We are his ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. Our song of invitation is to encourage you to say yes. Say yes to Jesus died for you. As Dwayne mentioned in his prayers as we were talking about partaking of communion. That's why he came, to shed his blood, to give his body, so that you could have eternal life. Your sins can be washed away in baptism. You get the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you are found, and heaven rejoices, and we do too. Or if we can pray for you, whatever it may be, to help you to be that ambassador, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage?